Hey everybody, it's Tanya again at Recovering Church Girls, and I am excited to have Carrie Psalm with us. Carrie, uh, oh my gosh, there's so many, so many crossovers. I just seriously cannot wait to dive into this conversation. You may already be familiar with her work as a writer. A couple of her articles recently have gotten quite a lot of attention, and I love how, again, the crossover of what you've been writing about is exactly one of the many hot topics that we have here at Recovering covering church girls. So with that kind of a little teaser, hi, Carrie. Hi. It's good I to be here. So excited to dive in um, because I'm really curious. Same. First of all, when I ask you what recovering church girls, what that idea or what that name means for you specifically, what do you think about? What do you, what resonates with you in that? Oh, man. Um, or... Oh, girl, I think that would probably be a better thing to say. <laughs> that really evokes an idea of church girls who are definitely on their way away from the, like, the purity movement, um, kind of being the good girl, which, hi, I'm like a recovering good girl. That's what I call myself. Yep. Um, people who you know, women who were raised to do everything, and I do mean everything, like you do the child rearing and you do the house cleaning and you do the relationship building, which really equates to a lot of the relational, spiritual, emotional labor mm -hmm. and a lot of the physical labor too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love that within the first like five seconds, you already mentioned the purity movement, because that is exactly why I am so excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, that is something that you and I both share in our childhood and upbringing of the idea of we, we survived the purity movement. Um, your <laughs> marriage has also survived. Mine did not. And I think a lot of yeah. that actually really did tie to my experience in the purity movement and most likely um most likely my my kid's dad's as well i certainly don't want to speak on his behalf um and i, I would just wouldn't do that so all of that to say can you take us back to your childhood and maybe even when this idea of the purity movement what we mean by that and when it was first introduced into your world what what did that look like for you at that point well i have to roll it way back <laughs> so when i was in fifth grade, so I was 10 turning 11, um, I went to a Petra concert. Oh, wow. The Beyond we're Belief going, Tour. Yep, we're going way back here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also, like, aging myself here. That's awesome. I love it. Um, but, yeah, I went with my mom, and Josh McDowell was touring with Petra, and he was doing his – uh, True Love Waits tour. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you are oh, familiar yes. with that. Oh, yes. And of course, my mom was like, yes, you know, <laughs> like, this is exactly it's, it's what, what <laughs> right. This is exactly what I want her to hear right now. And she was like, well, do you want a t-shirt? And, you know, the t-shirt said, I'm not doing it. Wow. In like big block letters <laughs> with the on the back it said why wait and it had you know like 200 reasons not to have sex and 
of course, like the middle one in red was because God said no Mm. or something to that effect. And I wore it to school the next day and I went to a public school in West Texas in, in Midland, Texas. And my teacher who I think was a Christian or at least, you know, most people were Christians. She was like, is that, is that shirt? Is that it? Like sex? And I was like, (laughs) yeah, that's exactly what it is. And she was just horrified that, you know, a fifth grader would wear an abstinence shirt. And it, it wasn't the fact that it was abstinence. It was just the fact that I was introducing a conversation about sexuality mm. into a group of my peers where it really wasn't appropriate, not at that point. Mm. And I got sent home from school <laughs> for wearing oh gosh, the abstinence t-shirt. And yeah, and that actually triggered a uh, domino effect in my family and they pulled me out of school the next year for sixth grade and homeschooled me and they were like well you're just being persecuted you know it's the world against christianity public Uh schools hate christians and then you know that's all i knew and i was like well yeah that's right that's Right. right there's an assault on you know christianity and um you know public school people just want us to have sex and <laughs> just, right it was so it was so false and you yeah, know but when you're in that, that culture really, when you're steeped in it you don't know any different right and that really was all we knew because the I think part of the part of the scenario was a bit of exclusion and you know kind of keeping a captive audience we didn't have any other outside influences to know anything mm-hmm. differently than what we were being told uh, and it's so funny i have not heard exactly. the word persecuted and i don't know how long but as soon as you said that like i can hear sound bites of those exact same conversations replaying in my mm-hmm. mind again so i'm like oh yeah we were totally persecuted yeah. <laughs> Yeah, might as well just like be murders, man. Like- right. Seriously, you know, because the like the equivalence, I think sometimes with this idea of the public school stigma and smuggling Bibles into China, like it's all persecution. I'm right. Like, mm, maybe, right. maybe there's a different scale there. Maybe. Right. It, not not all are equal in no. that conversation. No, <laughs> no not so much. Okay, so they pulled you out of public school. You were then put into homeschooling. uh, And then what? What what happened next? Complete disaster. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I I was a really social kid. And being in, uh, doing homeschool was really more like punishment to me. It wasn't, it it wasn't uh, a positive experience for me, like socially, of course. It also wasn't a positive experience for me academically. Mm. My mother was in charge of doing most of the schooling and she wasn't really qualified to teach me. Mm. And so I ended up doing a lot of self-study and that, that really just did not, (laughs) it it was not the right fit. So uh, I ended up going to, private school 
a private Christian school where like girls wore culottes to run track and we had to wear dresses and uh, skirts and had a very like strict uh, way of being. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't, you know, sit next to boys during chapel and we couldn't hold hands. We couldn't do any of that. And if we were deemed to be immodest in any of our dress, we would uh, be sent home. So I got sent home one time because my skirt was too tight. Hmm. You know, it was the 90s. Everything right. was knit. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Everything was knit in the 90s. Um, so by the way, I think we pretty much had like parallel universe childhood. Uh, I was in public school really? through eighth grade. And then I also was taken out to be homeschooled um, because the public school that we, I moved around quite a bit, um, and at that particular time in my life, the public school that was the option for me had the highest teen pregnancy rate in all of the state. And so therefore, the conclusion obviously yes. was that the way to prevent that calamity befalling the, the golden child, only child, was to simply remove her from the school, and then we'll do the whole purity movement and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. And then I also went to a private Christian school my senior year. We had the dress code. We had the specific skirts that had to be from the exact same kind of material. And of course, mm -hmm. we actually burned one of the skirts on the last day of school as our little like rebellion. Um, because that was about as rebellious as we could be in that <laughs> in that environment. So already I'm like, yeah. uh-huh, uh-huh, yep, check that one off the list too. <laughs> all the things, all the things. Yeah, and, you know, I think that was the experience for a lot of, yeah, I think that was the experience for a lot of women our age mm -hmm. growing up. And I went, I went to a public school my junior and senior year. We also had the highest teen pregnancy rate <laughs> in the state. Um, and this is in Texas. This is in Midland. And I was like the president of the True Love Waits, you know, whatever club or <laughs> right. whatever they did. And um, I would I would actually buy purity rings for my friends and try to get them on board. And I remember thinking like, you know, and I was like president of my youth group and super, super churchy and mm -hmm. very good person, right? And um, dated like the right guy in the youth group. And it was, it was just, now I look back at it and I cringe. I'm like, I was so, <laughs> so good, but not good, you know? Mm. Um and it was really a survival mechanism mm -hmm. is what it was. Yeah. Okay, so let's dig deeper into that for a little bit because I know, well, first of all, for anyone who might not be familiar with when we say purity movement, if you haven't pieced it all together, what we're talking about is literally a marketing campaign that kind of went across the nation to the churches of America mainly targeted, I feel like, at girls more so than guys. Uh, but mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, it was our responsibility to keep 
our entire youth population pure and that we would be saving sex for marriage. So when we talk about purity rings, this was an outward symbol of having taken that pledge. And for me, my dad gave me my purity ring when I was 16. It was engraved with my mm-hmm. initials. And the idea is that what you're supposed to do in order to be the good girl that deserves this ring is not only that you're not having sex, but that you're basically trading this one in for your diamond engagement ring when the time comes. So you never exactly. really have a chance to be your own person. You are almost instantly transferred from being, let's go so far as to say, a property or responsibility at the very minimum of your mm-hmm. father, then transferred to your fiance. Um, so, exactly. Yeah, I'm like going, that might be a little bit harsh, but maybe not so much either. Well, I was 14 when I got my purity mm-hmm. ring for my parents. And I was really excited about it. Um, and I also remember thinking, wow, okay, so having sex would be the absolute worst thing that I could do as a teenager, mm-hmm. then drugs, and then drinking. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So, Right. Well, and not just having sex, having sex and getting pregnant, which Mm. I could never get away with anything. So (laughs) I knew that if I had sex, I would just be pregnant, like automatically. I tried not to even think about sex because I was afraid that somehow I would get pregnant just by thinking about it. Just by thinking about it. Yeah, because thinking would lead to action. Well, right? and, and that's so much of what we hear and especially heard at that point in time that we became responsible for the thoughts that the boys in our youth group would have based on what we were wearing. So, exactly. of course, thoughts led to action, led to consequence. And it was it was like a foregone conclusion that if you were to wear uh, spaghetti straps or, you know, oh, yeah. off the shoulder or, you know, like anything that just revealed too much skin clearly you are on a blazed path for hell and destruction. It's pretty much the exactly. way that, <laughs> that came down. <laughs> well, and, and it's not just you. It's the fact that you're taking these godly mm. young men with you and mm. thereby robbing the church of its future leaders and I forgot women of their one. future husbands and children of their future fathers just because you had the fucking audacity to wear spaghetti straps. Yep. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I totally forgot about that added layer. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there, was no, there was no sense of this is my body. I get to do what I want to do with it. I will pay the consequences of what I choose to do with it. Mm-hmm. And those consequences are mine. It was you will ruin generations Mm. of people because of one decision. Mm -hmm. And so when my dad gave me the ring, I was obviously just like, okay, now this is it. Like I'm going to find a godly husband and we're going to have godly babies (laughs) and (laughs) I'm going to be probably like a missionary somewhere and be a martyr I probably won't live past 40 and Mm. it just, it it was such, it was such a deep well of what I, what I equate really is like self-loathing and Mm. 
you know, outside, uh, outside sources telling you to basically hate yourself. And if you don't hate yourself, at least hide yourself. Mm. And that's what purity culture is to me. It's, it's a way to teach people how to be ashamed of their body, how to hate their bodies, Mm. how to hate their, their primal being. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that is such a powerful, powerful frame for this. And I could not agree with you any more fully. And I don't know about you, but I felt the, um, how do I want to describe this? Almost like the intention was to separate me from myself. So totally, you know, absolutely the idea of the, the inward dialogue and the, the self-hatred and the self-loathing, mm-hmm. especially just for being human. And, you know, anything that might happen just by being human or wanting to connect with someone or, you know, whatever. I literally, oh, my gosh, I totally forgot about this. It's coming back now, though, that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, I cried myself to sleep the night that I had my first kiss. Cried myself to sleep because I thought it was my fault that I let things get too far. And we're talking about a French kiss. Like that's the extent of anything in terms of activity. And yet I was so filled with guilt and shame to the point where I actually, if you would have asked me probably for the next five or six years afterwards, anything about my first kiss, I honestly would not have been able to tell you anything because I rewrote the memory in my mind to erase it to do everything I could to erase that moment, I would not have honestly Mm. been able to tell you what his name was or anything, like anything at all, because I tried to undo it in my memory in that moment. I forgot all about that. (laughs) (laughs) Until just now? Until just now. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, yay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks a lot, Carrie. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, like how, how telling though is that in the idea of, coming back to this concept that the purity movement simply equals self-loathing here's a classic example and it's not like i was even trying to fit into your your soundbite here because that's that really is just what happened for me and it's i i think i think women in evangelical christianity have to undergo a certain amount of disassociation Mm. uh, because we are not taught autonomy you know, we are taught that we belong to God. And even, I, I don't know how you grew up, but I grew up with my parents saying, you are God's gift to us. He has entrusted you to us. Mm-hmm. It's our responsibility to guide you and protect you and teach you. And hopefully one day you'll go into the world and essentially regurgitate all of this and recreate (laughs) this with your own family. Right. And, you know, even, even the idea of getting married and finding a husband, like I was 28 when I got married and my family was like, we we didn't know if you were ever going to get married. Wow. And now I'm like, geez, 28 was too young to get married. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) it was, it was way too young to get married, but, And I remember like the relief from both of my parents Mm. when I did get engaged that, oh man, she's not our responsibility anymore. Wow. You know, like really this 
passing the baton, except mm-hmm. I was the baton. Yeah. Um, and just how fucked up that is. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. And it's interesting. I was 24. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I look back now and I'm pretty sure I've even told my kids, like, you are not allowed to even consider the idea of marriage until you're at least <laughs> 28. Uh, so just that yeah. idea of like going so soon, so, so soon. And yet at the same time, there was the constant conversation, constant. So are you seeing anybody? You know, like all of that type right. of thing of, you know, here we are so young. We don't even really know who we are yet. And the expectation is, right. well, you better get that MR de- or MRS degree, you know, before you get the actual yeah. piece of paper that says that you got an education. Right. And I, I remember, at, like, asking my grandmother if she would help me pay for college because she had helped uh, my brothers and uh, my cousin, who was also a dude. And she said no, because wow. it was worthless. And oh, so I put myself through school and, you know, my, my dad was a pastor, so they were, they didn't have a lot of money and I worked hard for scholarships and, um, what they really wanted me to do was marry my high school sweetheart. Mm. And he, I'm sure he was a decent person, but he was also a product of his environment and his environment was incredibly dysfunctional and they did view women as property Mm. that's not a that's not um an exaggeration they really believed that women belonged to men and should be disciplined Mm. the way you discipline children uh including spanking (laughs) not for fun i was gonna say not not (laughs) but for disciplinary right (laughs) i'm like now i'm like yeah sure let's let's have a (laughs) let's have a fun little spank no it was and he told me when we got into a fight and he told me, you know, Carrie, when we're, when we're married and we will be married, don't think that I won't hesitate to bend you over my knee and spank you when you start getting out of line. Oh and my I laughed because I thought he was just trying to like joke me out of a bad mood or like mm-hmm. trying to change the conversation and bring some lightheartedness to it. And he was like, why are you laughing? I am as serious as a heart attack right now. And I was like, oh, and done. Yeah, like, run for the hills. <laughs> even seven, I'm kind of proud of 17 ruled me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh no, that's abuse. Okay. Yeah. Okay, there's my hard line. There's, there's my hard line. Okay, and that but is really he- impressive just to congratulate your 17 year old self again, because again, in the environment in which we were in, for you to be able to maybe not even vocalize it, but to make that decision, like to see everything for what it was and to draw the hard line at 17, considering everything else that you'd already been conditioned to accept, that is pretty freaking huge. Yeah. Well, and, and just to set the record straight here, he did apologize a couple of years later. <laughs> well, he that's was like, good. <laughs> yeah. He was like, uh, okay. So I remember what happened and I, that, that was a wrong that was a wrong move and that was a wrong belief. And I don't, mm. I don't believe that. And that, that experience helped him, which mm-hmm. is great. Yeah. Um, and maybe even but it also, that pattern. I hope so. I mean, I don't, I haven't talked to him in 20 years, so, you know, I genuinely <laughs> hope so. Um, but I think, I think that there's just, even if it's not overt, 
there is kind of a covert belief that women are responsible to men for their feelings mm. and for their actions and for their missteps, but men are men don't have the same mm-hmm. uh, responsibility to women. No, if anything, I you would know? actually say it's so, almost even deeper and darker and twistier in the sense that, um, at least my experience anyway, mm-hmm. was that codependency was very closely intertwined with everything we've been talking about. So not only would it be that they're not responsible Mm -hmm. to us for their own ownership, but actually that we are responsible for keeping them happy. That was certainly the model for my first marriage. And not that it was explicitly said that, but that was like totally, you know, what it was expected. I remember hearing a conversation. How did this information come back to me? that my former mother-in-law was talking to one of her girlfriends about the the topic of our divorce and that I was blamed for some piece of it specifically. I forget what it was, but it, it was clear as day that not only was it my fault for not meeting his needs or caring for him the way that I should or, you know, whatever the case might be, but that it was all of these things wrapped up in, well, surely, you know, that was on her. And I will clearly own the piece that was mine. Yeah. Um, but boy, there was some things that were added to totally. my plate that were not mine in that. But it can't be all you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, speaking and that's of what, that, you know, yeah, can you... that's what purity culture does. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I apologize. I think we've got a little bit of a, a gap here in our in our Wi-Fi. Uh, as you're talking about this idea that it's not all one person or another person, can you take us into the early years of your marriage, having this background of the purity movement and the purity culture being something that you were so closely entwined with, how did that then impact your marriage and, and how you guys came to understand things? Well, <clears throat> I wrote about this in an article. Um, I, in, actually in a couple of articles um, that I have written for Ravishly, uh, which is a great online magazine. Uh, highly we'll, recommend we'll them. R A V I S H L Y. Yeah, because that's, that's <laughs> oh, the good. one that I read. Um, um, and yeah, so we will absolutely be posting that for everybody. Oh, great! And you know, I I had achieved a certain level of success in my career before I met my husband, and I was operating uh, a medical uh, mission, a nonprofit medical mission in Guatemala. And uh, I was also operating the funding organization uh, in addition to that. And it was really the job of three to four people. (laughs) And I was doing it by myself and it was, you know, it was so huge to me. And so while I was getting ready to be married, we, I, you know, I was traveling internationally quite a bit and when we were together, you know, we didn't want to fight. We didn't want to argue. We just wanted everything to be okay. And one of the things that my husband, his name is Lance. Um, one of the things that he was drawn to me uh, for was my ambition and my ability to, you know, make things happen. And I, I rebuilt an organization that was dying. Mm. And, you know, I put my whole heart and soul into it. And then I was instantly at odds when 
we started to become serious in our relationship because I had been taught that, you know, my husband deserves all of me Mm. and my job did not uh, last. Mm. (laughs) So about six months after we got married, you know, the job ended. And I remember leading up to the, leading up to our, our wedding, we were talking about how, how does the transition work from, mm. you know, me be me being a single woman who's in charge at work to being a submissive wife. Mm. And how do I transition from being a, a virgin to being a sex goddess? And we kind of landed on this strategy of the closer we become relationally, the closer we become physically. So like our emotional intimacy would mirror our and spiritual intimacy would mirror our physical intimacy. And so, you know, I was 100% a virgin on my wedding night, but you know, we we'd had like some naked time and <laughs> we had really started to kind of explore um, our bodies and um, some of our sexuality a little bit, but not, not like, I don't know, like we didn't have oral sex or anything like that. And on our wedding night, I was terrified. And I remember Mm. leaving our reception. (laughs) And this is probably TMI, but it's pretty funny. So I'm going to share it anyway. (laughs) Go right ahead. All good. All good. We were driving to our reception and uh, we were listening to the radio and um, Ice Ice Baby came on. And we looked at each other really awkwardly <laughs> and then we both like busted out into the rap and we were like feeling it. And then we were just like, then it was over and we were at the hotel and we were like, <laughs> like it's really awkward. <laughs> it's like, oh no, now like, what? Right. And, and then it was just like, oh, okay, well now it's time. Okay. Now oh, it's time. It's happening. And after, a lifetime of hearing that it's a no, it's a no, it's a no Mm. and gradually warming up, which I'm really glad we did. Um, and gradually warming up to our sexuality and, uh, warming up to the, the great finale of sex. Right. (laughs) It was like, I, I just had these little drops of doubt, you know, Mm. enter, enter my brain, just like little pings, like, who are you going to be now? You've always Mm. been a virgin. You've always built your life on this purity um, stance. And in just a matter of minutes, it's going to be over. Hmm. And I stood in front of the mirror. I was naked and I was about to put on my, you know, wedding nightgown, lingerie, (laughs) whatever. And I just like choked up. Like, I felt like I couldn't breathe. And this is a man who I couldn't wait to have sex with. This was a man I couldn't wait to enjoy that part of our relationship with. And, like, I I couldn't take a deep breath. Mm. And I was like, okay, it's about to be over. And, you know, we had sex. And it was, I mean, I think for a first time, it was probably fine. Um. And we went on to enjoy a very, you know, enjoyable sex life. And 
but after that moment, like I remember being on our honeymoon and just like, who am I now? Hmm. Cause I was losing my career and I was, I had lost my virginity and I was supposed to take on his name and we were supposed to join bank accounts and we were joining bodies and we were supposed to be one in every way. And mm. all I wanted was my own thing. Yeah. And I even remember like crying to my best friend. I was like, I have to share, um, I have to share a, a bed with a man for the rest of my life. And just like bawling about that hmm. because I, I was really clear that I was losing who I was and it was an intentional losing and he wasn't losing anything he was getting everything Mm -hmm. right yeah it was like realizing the game was rigged yeah oh yeah totally and and that was always the goal of the game Mm. right is for him to take possession and for him to own me and for him to be my focus and in doing that it created a really unhealthy dynamic Hmm. Thank you, first of all, just for your vulnerability and transparency and in, in sharing this journey with us, because I think there are so many of us who can identify and we can find ourselves in your story. And we've just never mm-hmm. had anyone to talk to about this because it was something that we just, we couldn't talk about it when it was happening. So all of the processing right. is going on in our own heads and we have all of the programming repeating back to us what we were told or how we should think or how we should feel. So it's almost like this entire thing is going on in our heads, but it's just a chasm. Like there's nothing there that we can actually work through until I think a lot of us ended up in therapy in some way, shape or form to really start to unpack the impact of so many of these very subtle, very nuanced ways of being only to find that, wow, that was a complete and total mindfuck in the way that we now see ourselves and the way that we see the world around us based on this one aspect of our childhood into teen teen years. Well, and you know, my job, uh, six months after we got married, my job fell apart and Mm. it was a very mutual, like I quit your fired moment. (laughs) (laughs) Like I knew that my marriage could not sustain uh, me traveling so much. However, I look back at that now and I think if it was a man Mm. doing my job and he was the woman, it absolutely would have worked. Right. Because the woman would have made it work. Mm -hmm. Yep. You would just adjust. And exactly. You just deal with it. And early on in our marriage, he wanted to become a pilot, which meant that he would have traveled like crazy. Um, and (laughs) You know, meanwhile, I'm like, well, I have to give up my really hard work and lifelong dream so I can be a good wife. Mm. And, you know, I think that's part of like what the good Christian girl thing was hardwired. And Mm -hmm. if you choose your career over your man, like you're really, you're really choosing uh, your, your flesh over Mm. your God. Yeah. And that's what it, it equated to. And it's so interesting that you use that specific phrase very mm-hmm. recently. Let's call this 2014, I want to say. The, okay. uh, my second marriage, 
which, you know, at that time I was the twice-divorced wedding planner, so quite a lot of irony in that idea. Um, but I am sitting in the pastor's office of the church that I've been a part of for over 10 years now at this point, and they were actually incredibly helpful and supportive during the course of my first divorce. And I'm now with the new husband. We've been married for not even, call it four months at this point. And mm -hmm. uh, he's painted this picture that I'm choosing my business over the marriage and over our blended family. So we're talking about as recently as four freaking years ago, the pastor says to me, if God were asking you to choose between your business and your family, what would you choose? How could you answer that? It took every ounce of self-control I had because I, I feel like I'm so grateful for the experiences that I've had because in that moment, I was crystal fucking clear. And I yeah. had this just rage in me, but it wasn't, you know, we talk like, or I should say it was mentioned in the Bible, this idea of like righteous anger. That's exactly how I felt because this yeah. was unrighteous, what was happening to me. And I could see it for what it was. And I don't know that I would have been able to had I not had all those previous experiences. But I was able very right. simply to say, I feel more of God in me when I'm sending a bride down the aisle than I do most Sundays sitting in that sanctuary. So don't ask me what, what I would say or do, because what you're saying is never something that God would ask of me. It's just not even an, right. a, an option. And, you know, it was, yeah, that was the end of that conversation. It was the end of the marriage. <laughs> but um, funny how he kind of forgot to mention that he was requiring extra things from me financially to keep up the lifestyle that he had gotten very accustomed to because his first wife was a six-figure corporate person. And I was like, dude, you knew my numbers when we got married. Like, you knew my actual yeah. tax return numbers. So don't try and turn around and spin this on me. You know what the life of an entrepreneur in a startup is. So anyway, yep. very long, complicated uh, story, especially for a marriage that only lasted for six months and a day. Uh, but just when you said this idea of, you know, choosing your career over your family and the expectation of God and all of society in that role as well, because again, has nothing to do with who we are or what we want. And this was as recently as four years ago, and we're still having right. those same conversations. Or the fulfillment that, that you get from that. And I'm sure you can imagine how well that played out um, in our marriage, mm. where I, you know, get, essentially I gave up my calling to embrace what I thought was my true calling, which was mm. being his wife, um, except that I went into a really deep depression. And um, the the other the other part of this is that our focus on sex and our focus on uh, premarital sex actually really distracted us from key and fundamental truths <laughs> about the other person. And the truth is we are horribly incompatible. We're still married. Yeah. We've been married for 11 years. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, <laughs> we, had, we had a conversation, uh, my husband and I had a conversation a few months ago and we just, for the first time ever, played the what if game. Mm. And, I said, what if 
we believed what we believe now, 12 years ago when we were dating or 13 years ago, however long it's been. And my husband said, well, we probably uh, would have had really hot sex for about nine months. And then you would have broken up with me hmm. like without hesitation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it all figured out. <laughs> yeah, like, this is not in your conversation in his head. <laughs> like, <laughs> he had clearly answered that question before to himself. And I, I laughed. And then I felt really sober. And like, you're right. Mm. You're absolutely right. Because we were so compatible on like, that basic primal level, and we knew it we really overlooked like temperamental things, Mm. um, life goals (laughs) and, uh, you know, how, how we want to live and develop in the world and how we want to develop the world around us. Mm -hmm. Just, and not that one is good or one is bad. We're just very different. Sure. And that, that was not, uh, apparent because we were so blinded by so focused you know, on not having culture. sex <laughs> right that that was yeah. like all we could think about and yeah that makes sense yeah and you know later on in the marriage it also caused issues because biblically and i say that with uh you know like air quotes for sure mm-hmm. <laughs> biblically <laughs> women uh shouldn't say no to their husbands for sex and that was always whether it was implied or explicitly stated that was always in the back of my mind so if he initiated sex I felt like I had to have sex yes and if he wasn't in the mood and I was in the mood and I went after him and I was like hey you want to you know take a take a little break here have have a little quickie maybe like no I'm too tired or you know I'm really stressed out by work valid valid reasons I would get my feelings hurt because Mm -hmm. then I believed that I was failing in my role Mm. as his wife because I wasn't enticing enough Mm. you know Um, and then he felt like he was failing in his role as a husband because he was supposed to be like the sex driven you know, like anytime I can get it in, I need to get it in. And, right. right. <laughs> you know, so that was like toxic masculinity for mm-hmm. him. And then it just created like the swirl of shame around something that already had so much shame attached to it before. But yeah, we were somehow able to kind of sidestep it for the first few years because we did things the right way you know <laughs> yeah yeah Which, but funny how eventually it's still it's still caught up with you right like it's still was something that needed to come to the surface in order to be exposed <clears throat> to what it was and then to really be able to kind of dig deep into it and release the stuff that you no longer hold to, which is something I would love to yeah. hear more about you know you mentioned this idea of if the you of now could go back 12 years ago you know, you're very different people from when you were between now and then. What do you, do you, like, was there any particular moment that it was an all of a sudden shift? Was it micro changes that you made along the way? Like, how did you get to be who you are now versus who you were 12 years ago? 
Yeah, I mean, in uh, one of my articles about leaving evangelical Christianity, I wrote about how I came home from Guatemala. My husband was outside on the porch and he just busted out with, uh, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. Hmm. And, uh, or I, I don't think I believe in God anymore. Um, and I'm definitely not a Christian. And I was like, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, and I think, I think I, I mean, I definitely yelled at him and I was like, we just made a fucking commitment in front of all of our friends and all of our family and God and, you know, and, and now you're, now you're reneging on this. Are you fucking kidding me? Mm. And I'm, I'm so grateful now that he did that because it gave me permission to explore doubts that I'd always had um, without fear of losing that support system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's, he's definitely a a rebel, you know, he's, no one's going to tell him what to do. And I love that about him as much as it drives me nuts. Like I still really value that in his uh, makeup, you know, and, Mm -hmm. Um, because it, it really provided that, that safe space to explore those doubts and those conversations and to have someone to explore them with. And so our deconstruction process has really happened together. Um, Which is huge. I mean, that is absolutely a miracle in and of itself. And yes, I recognize the irony of the word, uh, but really, I mean, like that's such a (laughs) great thing, right? Uh, but yeah. I mean, really, I can't imagine <laughs> how how that would work any other way unless it was something that you guys experienced together. Yeah, and you know, it it's still complicated. It it hasn't it hasn't become less complicated over the years. <laughs> but there, but there there is a place of unconditional love that we have for each other. Mm. Uh, which is not the same as unconditional commitment. That's and a I think great we've arrived. Yeah. And I think we've arrived at that differentiation. Like, I love you no matter what. But like every couple of years, we just reassess, like, is, is this marriage working? And, hmm. you know, as long as, as long as we can make it work, we want to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, but that requires a lot of hard conversations and, uh, just a fuck ton of therapy. Yeah. And, um, and I'm really grateful. And awareness. And like, seriously, I've got mad props for you guys for this, because just that idea of, you know, it's that, that classic thing that we were always told about if you really love something, set it free or, you know, hold your right. hands loosely so that the grains of sand can like all of the things, <laughs> right. You guys are actually right. doing it as it relates to your marriage. And right. that is, that's a huge thing. Right. And as long, this is how we feel. Um, you know, we have two children and we like, our, our kids are amazing. And I know everyone thinks their kids are amazing, (laughs) but I think my kids are like extra amazing. And as long as, as long as we are both in the conversation and as long as it's working right now, that's what matters. Mm. And, you know, we don't have sex like we used to like as frequently because, we are exhausted. Parenting is so, so exhausting. And your kids are younger. How old are your yeah. kids right now? I have a five-year-old and a one-year-old. Yeah, that's that's a lot of hands-on yeah. time <laughs> running around. Yep, I right. remember those. I remember those ages. 
Yeah. And then I, you know, I work and my husband works and I'm breastfeeding still. And it's, it's, it, this is not the time in our lives to like rediscover ourselves sexually. Right. We're like, oh man, let's have sex. Cool. That was awesome. Like <laughs> high five. <You> know? <laughs> like great. the days of like cuddling and being like, oh, I love you so much. Like, that's just not the phase we're in right now. And that's, that's okay. But we just, we stay in a conversation about it. And sometimes the conversation is hard and mm. sometimes it's heartbreaking. And, um, but we, we both are committed to our families and our family, not families. <laughs> There's only one family that I know of. Um, we're both committed to our family and our kids, and we're also committed to figuring out uh, ways that we can all own our own lives. Mm. And that gets harder as we deconstruct further. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to get divorced. It also doesn't mean we're going to stay together. It just means this is what it is right now. And as long as we can make it work, we will. Yeah. Yeah. Which so, I think there's, I hope it's for 50 more years. <laughs> right. And I will hope for that on your behalf as well, because there's something so beautiful and so rare about being able to have even this level of conversation and transparency and, you know, kind of really individually owning your shit. I don't, I mean, like, I'm seriously blown away uh, by this conversation that you guys are able to have, because I feel like if more relationships could get to that point, we'd probably have a lot less divorce and we'd probably have yeah. longer lasting marriages and relationships because there's a fluidity that is being recognized and valued for what it is, as opposed to being forced, you know, the, the round uh, peg into the square hole or vice versa. Right. Well, and, and I think also part of deconstructing the purity culture is also deconstructing divorce culture and mm. looking at divorce as though it is um, this horrible, horrible thing. Don't get me wrong. Unbearable pain, brokenness that will never be fixed. But I've also seen the other side mm -hmm. of marriages that continue on when they really should have ended. Yeah. And I see what what has happened to the children in those relationships mm -hmm. and you know in in purity culture it's like you stay married forever the end and if you don't then you are breaking a covenant with god mm -hmm. and sex is in that covenant right like <laughs> sex yeah. is like the glue in that covenant and i think taking it a, a step farther and and looking at looking at it as a partnership and looking at it as you know, no matter what, we're always going to have these children together. Right. And we will always have to figure out how to communicate. We'll always have to figure out how to be in each other's lives. We'll always have to figure out how to love each other and love these humans together. And right now, marriage makes the most sense. Mm -hmm. And in 10 years, it might not, right. you know? I, I hope it does, but it, it doesn't mean that divorce or exploring other ways of being a family is wrong. Mm 
-hmm. Like it's more important to be honest than to be happy, I think. Um, And I think honesty, yeah. (laughs) And I think honesty leads to happiness eventually. Absolutely. I mean, I have said thousands of times, I would never wish divorce on my worst enemy. Um, Ironically enough, you know, isn't it usually that the divorce process creates the worst enemy, you know, just by default in in the process of unraveling all these things. So I would never, ever wish that on anyone. And yet I am so incredibly grateful that I would do it all again. I'd have to even do it both times if I, you know, made the mistake of marrying the second one again. The first one, I got my kids out of the deal. So that was like, you know, totally totally cool totally worth it uh, but yeah the redemption the process, yeah. <laughs> oh absolutely but the the process i think yeah. of coming back to myself because so much of what you you've said about yeah. losing yourself in the course of your marriage i absolutely did that and that is definitely something that is mine and mine alone to own in that journey but the process of coming back to myself was incredibly complicated and in some ways it was quick Mm -hmm. and in some ways it wasn't and in some ways it was very clean and straightforward and in other ways it was dark and twisty so you know it really it is a process whether you are deconstructing the thought pattern that you grew up with and the belief system or if it's a piece of your identity you know what we choose to see in ourselves or what we aspire to become all of those things they all factor in to you know really this entire human existence thing right yeah and you know i feel like as long as as long as we're all committed to doing the work i guess the old rules just continue to like not apply. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like they, they, they kind of cancel themselves out, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the, the deeper we dive and um, just the more we see like what love really is about. And it's not about sex. Mm-hmm. Sex is, sex is, I feel like its own thing. And love is something entirely different. And um, it's wonderful when sex can be uh, a companion to love, but I don't believe that it is a part of love any more than I believe I am a part of my husband and he is a part of me. Mm. Like we share a life and in that way, yeah, we, and we have children and and that way we are a part of each other, but I'm my own person and he is his own person. And Mm -hmm. those people have responsibilities to themselves Mm -hmm. and like the relationship is like a third person. Yep. I right? love that analogy. Absolutely. Because it, it really does become its own entity and it requires the individual effort from each of you. And like you said, you know, the commitment to do the work. And it's something I think that when you when you dive into self-discovery work and 
self-awareness, we tend to refer to the work, meaning the like deep internal, the processing, mm-hmm. the understanding what we think and just as importantly, why we think it. All the different voices in our head, where do they come from? Is it something I actually still believe? So when we say the work, that's the kind of shit that we're talking about. It's not the light, fluffy, like, yeah. you know, I'll do the dishes if you make dinner. Like that's not, <laughs> that's not the kind of work we're right. talking about in making a partnership <laughs> last and really have that level of connection and commitment and communication. Right. And, you know, even now we talk about like, what are we going to tell our kids? Because this is kind of a weird thing, you know, like (laughs) we really believed in not having sex until we were married and, but we don't believe that now and we don't expect you to. And we've even had the conversation of like, well, of course we want whoever they have sex with to be someone that they really care about. And I've even dialed that back. I'm like, Hmm. I don't want to put my wishes on them for their sexuality. I want my daughter when she is ready and she chooses the person, I want her to feel empowered. I want Mm -hmm. her to feel like it is a choice and I want her to fully embrace that moment. Right. That's huge. Or maybe it's not even like a big deal to her. She's like, okay, yeah, well, that's the thing I did. And next (laughs) what am I gonna do now like now I'm gonna go backpack across Europe like you know what I mean and and for my son we we really want to teach him consent Mm -hmm. and uh, respecting women's bodies and their boundaries Um, and he's a white male Mm -hmm. and he's going to have certain privileges and entitlements that my daughter will not and really focusing on teaching him you know women are not objects. Mm -hmm. They are not something for you to express something on Mm. or to project something on. They are their own beings and you need to respect all of who they are. Mm. Um, And, you know, you ask and it doesn't matter if you think it's lame. You ask. And even now we're like, did you ask your friend if you could hug them? And he's like, well, no. And he's like such a little love bug. (laughs) You need to ask your friend. And because it it matters, like Mm -hmm. consent matters and building that sense of autonomy Mm. from early on, I believe really matters. And if I overcorrect, okay. Right. (laughs) Because I mean, really, when you're talking about overcorrecting in this framework, what could possibly go wrong? Like, I can't think of a serious, you know, like, I I seriously can't think of anything is what I'm trying to say. Uh, Any negative ramification of that whatsoever. We've even had the conversation when it came to um, my son had a sleepover a couple of months ago. um, I guess it was a year ago now. And all the guys were um, getting into, like, the pillow fight and the dog piles and all the rest of it. And I was the very uncool mom. Like, I really like having the cool mom card, and I like collecting all totally. of my cool mom points. But, boy, did I throw <laughs> it all away. Um, and I broke up the whole thing in the middle of it. And I was like, I just want to check in with everyone. Is everyone who in, is involved with this, do the rest of the guys all have your permission? Do you give your consent to be a part of this? Because there was one particular guy that was, like, really getting razzed by everybody else. And so even pulled him out, not to single him out, you know, it was kind of like I, I went one by one in that right. conversation to make sure that they knew that their voice could be heard. And it wasn't a matter of like pride or the gang mentality or any of that kind of stuff, because that 
here's another conversation we need to have. So, Carrie, we're going to have to have you back um, because when it comes to that group think and how that relates to sexuality and especially within the church and within purity culture, like that's a whole nother thing. But yeah, that consent and building that at such a young age, uh, could you go ahead and just like reparent the vast majority of the generation? Because that would be really helpful. (laughs) And here's here's the bonus, right? Having your own kids, you you do get to reparent yourself. And like every time, and, and I talked about this, like every time I say to my baby, you know, I'm like, you, you are worthy of love Mm. and your body belongs to you. You are your own person. You are your own being. I I very consciously say it to myself Mm -hmm. and I'm like choking my own self up. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) No apologies. But I, I really take it to heart mm-hmm. because I need to hear those things. And, you know, my mother's a good Christian woman and she's never going to tell me that, Yeah, you know, and that doesn't make her a bad person. She's just in that culture. It's part of, it's part of her culture. And that is not a part of the family culture that I ever want to pass down mm-hmm. to my daughter. And I really want to heal it in my own life. Yeah, and absolutely. like kids are great opportunities to, you know, heal your own self. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so true. I've told so. my kids, I don't know how many times that, you know, I'm choosing to parent you differently than the way that I was parented, that I, in the way that I was raised because right. I lived through that. And, you know, there was some damage there and yeah. not to you know, not to belittle uh, anyone in the experience or to make mine more dramatic or, you know, any of the rest of it, but even thinking about the conversations around the Me Too movement and how many of us all had stories that we never told. And even, you know, thinking about that in context of marriage and Mm -hmm. especially being in the good Christian wife version of the marriage. I've got Me Too movement stories. Yeah. And, you know, that's I don't know a single woman who doesn't. Right. Exactly. And Honestly, it's just kind of like we we have not had the permission until we gave it to ourselves in order yeah. to get to that level of healing and exposure yeah. and being able to really bring the light to the dark shadows, which, again, exactly. like how ironic that, you know, we can <laughs> use biblical terms to describe what we're really talking about and, and mm-hmm. getting to that truth telling, you know, type of, of experience. Yeah. Well, Carrie, this has been an amazing conversation, um, and I'm so, so grateful not only for you to take time to to be with us. I'm also grateful for your littles because I know that uh, I'm sure mommy is being missed right now. (laughs) Uh, You know what? You know what's great is they're with their dad. So they are being parented and (laughs) nurtured and well cared for just as well, maybe even better than I could care for them. So, and you get a chance to be in your own skin and to not Mm -hmm. have any of that external piece. And I think that especially when the kids are so little, that is such a huge thing. Um, Yeah, I take that. I I I didn't do that. (laughs) I take every break I can get. I'm like, oh, you want to you want to watch my kids? Cool, bye. That is a very, I think that's very healthy when, yeah, yeah, at this age, because it's just it's so demanding. I'm happy to leave and happy to come home. Exactly. <laughs> exactly how that works. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so Thank much, Thank you Gary, so much. Thank you. I appreciate the invite.
Absolutely. And and I promise that there will be another one as well because I have a feeling we're just starting to like scratch the surface. There's just so much here. There's I so can't much wait. here. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, it is. Yes. <laughs> For all of you who are uh, listening and and a part of this, if this resonates with you, if there is any part of yourself that you can find in our stories and you know that this is the case for another person that you love, send the podcast over to them and just share share your heart in, in that share. Because sometimes I think that we become so isolated and disconnected from these pieces of ourselves, even when we're in the either deconstruction phase or we're beyond it, we sometimes forget what it's like to be in that moment fresh and raw and looking at these questions saying, well, what the hell do I do about that now? So if this resonates with you, send it along and share your heart with it uh, because that's really what we're all about. It's, it's the safe place for those stories. So, Carrie, thank you so much. I appreciate it. We will talk to you very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.